Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. How we speak reveals much about who we are, our age, nationality, level of education, origins, and aspirations. In her new book, How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You, Catherine D. Kinsler, a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, investigates how people, even pre-verbal infants, interpret and respond to the language they hear, and how biases toward and against certain ways of speaking develop. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and brings Professor Kinsler to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, the book is fascinating. Uh, you write that your interest in language as it functions to delineate social groups began when you spent a summer in Croatia. What made you want to study Serbo-Croatian? Or should we even say Serbo-Croatian? You know, it's an interesting observation. Um, you know, that was one of the things that I'd observed. Um, you know, I was I was interested in traveling and, you know, I happened to have a research connection there and I was still kind of exploring my interests at that time. Um, and, you know, I had a textbook with me that was called Serbo-Croatian. Um, and then I got there and discovered that that's really not what people called it, right? So they called it Serbian or Croatian or Bosnian. Um, so, you know, it really, it was a, an early sign to me that, you know, people who have traveled to many different places would know, which is that languages change when people change. You say that language reinforces boundaries between in-groups and out-groups. How did you see that happening in Croatia? Well, you know, at the time, um, this was, I was there in 2003, um, and this was the, you know, the former Yugoslavia, um, nations that had split up during a civil war. And uh, this happens everywhere. So, you know, it was something that I observed and I started thinking about, but when people start to diversify into different groups, this could be because of a, you know, a political conflict or a war. It could be as simple as two groups moving, you know, across a mountain range and being on two sides. Language changes really quickly. So over just a couple generations, you can start to find features in the language that will be slightly different. And so from that, it becomes kind of this, you know, really, really good marker of who's in your group and who's not in your group. And that's something you say you even found in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. So, you the know, yeah, that's right. The the story of Shibboleth. So this is the story of um, uh, the Gileadites who had captured the fords of the Ephraim. I think I'm saying it right. Um, and, you know, whenever somebody came over, they said, say, Shibboleth, because if somebody pronounced it as Sibboleth, then they would sort of betray their native group allegiance. So the idea was, you know, if anybody's tried to take a language learning class, say, um, you know, if you've tried in high school or in college, you know just how in incredibly difficult it is to learn um, particular to learn a non-native language, but particularly to learn a non-native accent. And so in this sense, when you open your mouth to speak, you're often telling people who the voices were who were talking to you when you were a child. And I guess that means we should admire the actors, both American and British, who have mastered the the accents to a point where you really can't tell. Uh, Absolutely. But 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 the, although you say uh, that uh, we really didn't, we failed to grasp the importance of studying these things until recently, didn't George Bernard Shaw write Pygmalion <laughs> in 1913 based on this premise? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, that's a, that's a lovely... Um, that's a lovely example. Um, and, you know, I think that this is something that 
in some ways we're so aware of, right? And so, you know, the idea that if you're trying to, you know, your language map, you know, in the in the example you just gave, right, that your language, it tells not just something about where you grew up, but something maybe about your social class or how other people perceive your group, um, that it's something that's both intuitive. And then I think also we're not talking about it enough that we don't always realize how much language matters for our own lives and also for the lives of other people. What sounds in language are the most characteristic features of an accent? Uh, the ones that are certain ones harder for people to learn in a new language? Uh, uh, is it the vowels or the consonants or, or the tune, the stresses, yeah. the rhythm, yeah. the phrasing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's all of those to some extent, um, you know, vowels are often kind of a telltale, a telltale sign. Um, so it might depend a little bit on the language that you're studying, but I think the different pieces that you just pulled out, you know, are really, are really important ones. So absolutely vowel space differs um, across different languages and across different dialects. Um, there are sometimes certain consonants, either consonant clusters that change a little bit. So when people talk about New York English, often they'll talk about dropping the R at the end of um, the word, but then also the rhythm, kind of like the the prosody, the rhythm. That's also something that comes out in different languages. So I think all of those parts of it contribute to the way that your language sounds. But there are regional variations, even uh, in uh, what we might consider correctly pronounced English. For example, Northeasterners say Florida and Nevada. Most of the rest of America pronounces them Florida and, and Nevada. Yeah. Both so, correct, aren't they? Yeah. So, I mean, any way of speaking is correct. It's kind of a new way, I think, to think about it, which is that dialects grow up around the people who speak them. And so language is just so social. And so when a group of people come together and they like each other and they speak together, um, they're going to develop a characteristic way of saying things. And so in that sense, the way that a certain group says things is correct for that social context. Um, and the same thing is true for some other group. And so it's not to say that there's, you know, any dialect is going to have its own coherent grammatical structure. Um, it's going to have, you know, characteristic pronunciation. And so for a group of speakers, it's correct to speak that way. Most of us learn to talk through our parents. Do we grow up sounding like them? Uh, for example, yeah. in my case, uh, I, I wonder which one, uh, I know which one was the strongest influence on how I sound. My mother had a Boston accent and my father was very Jamaica Queens. And and where did you grow up? In Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So, Don't I sound like I grew up from grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn? So what's funny about kids is, so on the one hand, you've got parents who are absolutely language models, right? So you know, I don't know, I've got I've got a baby and he doesn't talk yet, but I'm you know I'm waiting for him to talk and to you know hear the words that I'm trying to input come out in him. It's one of the most fascinating things about being a parent. Um, but as kids get older, they typically tend to learn the language and the way of speaking of their peers, not of their parents. And so it's kind of this, um, you know, at first it feels counterintuitive. Like you could speak to your kids for five years and then they go off to kindergarten and, you know, speak in a different way. But again, if you think about language as being this social way of connecting to people, kids want to fit in. They want to sound like the other kids. And so in that sense, it makes so much sense that while their you know, minds are still really flexible, that they're figuring out the way the community speaks. And that's not always the way that their parents speak. 
And you uh, say that in uh, in modern times, recently, it's a matter of connecting to the, the social group that you want to be connected to. So in school, it's the jocks versus the burnouts. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one example. Um of a, of a sociolinguistic study I talk about um, by a researcher, uh, Penelope Eckert at Stanford. And, you know, what she did was she looked at um, she looked at a high school and she looked at the, you know, there they were the jocks versus the burnouts. Now, I think every high school might differ a bit and you might have, you know, slightly different categories. They might not be called that, but probably it's bringing up something in your mind if you'd attended high school, um, you know, and have a sense that there's going to be different groups. Um, and the idea is that you can kind of see subtle differences and adolescent speech based on which social group they really, you know, that they were a part of. And in some way, one interesting thing about language is that on the one hand, it reflects your childhood, right? And so you speak like the voices you heard as a child. On the other hand, if you look at kind of more fine grained distinction, your language can say something about your current social group, about where you're going, where you want to go, who you're affiliating with now. And so in that sense, language is also dynamic and it's social and it's revealing something about your social life, you know, often whether or not you want it to. So in, uh, with school kids again, we have uptalk and we have vocal fry, for example. Uh, now uptalk, I, I assume, uh, started in a valley because we associated with valley girls. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's this this kind of way of ending your sentence like it's a question. And for any kind of dialect feature like this, it's not necessarily, there's nothing necessarily good or bad about it. But the problem is when we can really attach a lot of social meaning to it. And then often what we'll do is we'll, you know, judge people based on their way of speaking. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting is that this can really change over the course of a generation. And so often it's younger adults, adolescents, and often even um, younger women who are really kind of the drivers behind language change. Um, and sometimes you see differences. So for instance, you know, older adults often really don't like the way that young people speak. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that was true for any older adult when they were a kid, probably an older generation also didn't like the way that they spoke. Um, and so what you find is that this can shift. So for the example of vocal fry, which is kind of that creaky, um, you know, where your voice, your voice kind of trails off into an uh, sort of sound at the end of it. And um, what you find is that older adults really don't like it when young people use this. But there have been linguists who have asked what um, what younger adults think. And I've even tried this sort of anecdotally in some of my classes. And they think, oh, you know, it doesn't sound bad. It sounds like, you know, somebody who's really kind of going somewhere professionally. So you can imagine as those people grow up, our notion of what sounds professional and what doesn't could shift. You begin your book with the story of a filmmaker who wondered whether he sounded gay when he spoke. Uh, sometimes we do associate certain ways of speaking uh, with gays, although there are plenty of gays who don't speak that way. And there are plenty of people who aren't gay who do. But yeah. uh, what was he what was he concerned about? 
Yeah. So this is the story of, um, of David Thorpe, who, as you said, was a filmmaker and he kind of turned the camera on himself to try to understand his own voice. Um, so I think you set it up really well in saying first, there's just so much distribution that's the same across groups. So it's not like gay men speak this way and straight men speak this way. That's just not at all how it is. Right. Um, there's, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of overlap in how people speak a tremendous amount of individual variation. Right. So it's not like you've got these two, you know, distinct groups. But what you can do is you can look at kind of averages. And so, you know, one um, one kind of stereotype that you might see out there, you might see it in films um, is a stereotype of something that people might call something akin to a gay lisp. And in fact, that stereotype is completely wrong, that if anything, what you might see is that gay men are slightly more likely to hyper articulate their speech, which is to mean to actually be just a small bit more clear. Um, and so, you know, the stereotype is wrong at the same time. If you had, say, you know, an average group of 100 gay men and 100 straight men living in the same city, you might find slight differences at the group level. Again, not at the individual level. There's a lot of variation. But at the group level, you might find slight vowel differences between the two groups. And again, what I think that, that you know, speaks to is this idea of, you know, that when you join a new community, that your voice takes on properties of the people who are speaking that, you know, who are in your social community. And so this can happen for any social group and speaking together and starting to take on vocal features that are the same as each other is really a way of uniting a social group. So uh, in the case of David Thorpe, he realized that when he was younger, he didn't talk that way. Uh, Unconsciously, he had adopted a style so that he could feel like he was part of a group. Yeah, and it's complicated. So, you know, he kind of starts out the film not liking the way that he was speaking. Um, And then I think the film has a really beautiful message at the end, which is that in some ways accepting yourself is accepting yourself and accepting the way that you speak really go hand in hand in that your speech is such a critical piece of your identity. And so, you know, feeling comfortable in your voice is really a sign in many ways of feeling comfortable in your social world, in your social network, you know, in yourself. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. Uh, Catherine D. Kinsler is my guest. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and her book is How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, Is there such a thing as standard American English? Is that the sort of thing that broadcasters supposedly speak? Yeah, I think, you know, on the one hand, the term standard is kind of unfortunate. Um, And so, you know, I wish we had another, I I wish we, you know, could all come up with a different way to call that in the sense that I think when you think of one thing as being standard, and one thing as being less standard, it kind of has a value associated with it, right? But insofar as, you know, that is the term that many people use, um, and, you know, I do talk about it in my book as well, you know, what people think of as standard American English, yeah, it's what you hear on the news. Um, Often it's what you hear in parts of the Northeast, in the Midwest. Um, Now, people can mistakenly have the point of view that if you speak in standard American English, that means you don't have an accent. But of course, that's wrong. Everybody has an accent. So, you know, those same features you described, right, like what your vowels are like, um, your consonant clusters, whether you're... um, 
you know, uh, the prosody, you know, both the, the, you know, the sound of your words, both in terms of your vowels as you produce them and the rhythm of them, like everybody has those features because it doesn't make sense not to. So everybody has an accent and this idea, I think it's sort of, you know, there's kind of this idea perpetuated that some people have an accent and some people don't. And that's just, that's just not right. I've also heard it uh, called mid-Atlantic. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, do do people think that standard American English or Mid-Atlantic sounds more authoritative? Uh, for example, are witnesses in trials who speak in that uh, in that way considered more believable? They are, and I think the major problem with that is that we don't we're not always aware of that. And so, you know, I can show you some sort of, you know, some, some psychology studies where people look at different things. So one thing they look at is whether, right, if you're speaking what's considered a really standard or typical way, you're, you know, a, a fact said in a native standard sounding voice just sounds more believable and compelling to people. There's also psychology studies where people will evaluate, say, a mock courtroom kind of, um, you know, a mock trial and hear the same witness speaking in different ways. And again, someone's basic level of credibility is just seen as slightly different. So then when you take those findings and then you apply them to the real world, you imagine actually somebody being on trial or actually somebody being a witness. You just see how this could have huge consequences for who's believed um, and, you know, who has access to basic um, to basic systems of justice and who doesn't. Are we adjusting all the time? For example, I went to a school in London when I was 20 years old, and people laughed when I said, uh, I saw it in the news. They said, the news? What's the news? And so I started saying news. Uh, as the, the, there was the Jew on the rose uh, as a result as well, and any number of other words uh, changed as a result of uh, having spent that time there, but I didn't pick up a British accent. Still, uh, it's been with me the rest of my life. I don't think about it. It's just the way I speak now. So I think the way I think about it is that kind of at the margins, we're always changing. And so that could mean that we're changing, you know, as you say, you travel abroad, um, you know, maybe you move within this country to a new, to pl a place where, you know, there's a new dialect that's spoken or a different dialect that's spoken. So, or just you're in a new social community, or even just when two people come together and they have an interaction and they like each other, their voices accommodate to each other slightly. So I think about it kind of at the margins, we're always shifting a bit. And that's where you can kind of get this, you know, this insight into both who someone is is and where they're going. Now, from a bigger picture perspective, our language often reflects the voices we heard as a child. So, you know, you might have shifted slightly in how you said the word news, and I imagine there were probably other vowel features you shifted to. Um, but I would, you know, guess that probably never in your time there would someone think that you weren't an American. And so, you know, it's hard, it's really hard to completely take on a new accent. And so that's why, you know, back to your point about these actors who can do this are just, you know, so formidable at it. And then it's so impressive because it's so hard for most people to do. Now, you mentioned earlier that we judge people based on their accents. Why are Southern accents sometimes thought to indicate lower intelligence, although maybe more graciousness? And why did the bad guys in many movies often have foreign accents or, or versions of the so-called Brooklyn accent? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have a good answer for the, you know, the deepest down why question, you know, for, for how did this form kind of in the first place, but what I can say about any kind of cultural stereotype is that that's what these are, right? And so as a culture, we often have um, stereotyped or prejudiced reasoning about different groups of people, right? You could have a stereotype that, you know, people from X, whether it's a place in the U.S. or a an occupation or a race or a, um, a racial group or a religious group and so forth, right? That you think of a certain group of people as being a certain kind of way. And that's, you know, invariably false about every individual in that group. And so what we do is we take a stereotype about the group and we, you know, sort of erroneously apply it to some individual that you don't know anything about. And that's happening with our language kind of all the time. And so you could have a stereotype that, you know, that could be something that's kind of out there in the culture that a certain group of speakers are kind of like this. And then when you hear a voice like that, it activates that stereotype and you apply it to that person again, whether or not that individual has given you any evidence of their intelligence or likability or anything else. Do babies recognize accents? So yes and no. Now, yes, in the idea that babies are getting tuned up on their native or familiar way of speaking. And so right at birth, babies actually have, you know, really remarkable linguistic capabilities. And so right in the you know, from, you know, newborn babies can recognize the sound of the language that they heard their mother speaking um, during the end of pregnancy. Now, it probably sounded kind of like language, you know, that you'd hear, say, underwater. So it's not a perfect signal. And so a baby who, say, heard uh, um, French in utero would be able to tell the difference of French from English from Russian, but French and Italian would be mixed up because they're too similar. Now, as that baby gets older, by around, say, five or six months of age, they start to become much better at differentiating different sounds, particularly if it's their language versus some a different language. So at that point, say, by, you know, five or six months of age, a baby who hears French is going to be able to tell that French is different from Italian, um, is different from Spanish, and so on. Now... What's happening is that they're getting better and better at the sounds that they hear, the native sounds, and they're starting to lose the ability to discriminate um, phonemic contrast, so differences in the sound of the language that aren't reflected in their native language. So by the time they're a year, babies are actually become less good at picking out sound differences that are represented in another language. So in that sense, they're getting tuned up on native, and they're kind of losing some abilities to discriminate sounds that would only be meaningful in a foreign language. At what ages do children figure out that some dialects are higher status than others? Yeah, so I think that's a really different process. So when I think about infants, I think about their orienting to native, and they're even starting um, to think about language as representing groups of people. So some of my studies show that babies have this kind of early sense that people who speak in the same kind of way might be alike on some other dimension. But this is sort of basic social categorization, and it's not necessarily about prejudice or stereotypes. But what you do is you get then society, which can have a ton of stereotypes 
and prejudice that are applied to different groups of speakers. And as kids get older, they are like cultural sponges and they learn all the prejudice things that society has to offer. So, you know, the particular age might vary depending on the child and the context and, you know, how much the stereotypes are discussed in the society around them. Um, but, you know, I would think more that's going to be more on the order of, you know, at least preschool, but possibly older, possibly school age, like between, you know, five to 10 years of age, somewhere around there. What is voice onset timing? Yeah. So, um, so that's this little space that you have um, after some consonants. So basically, um, you know, if you say a P or a K, if you hear there's kind of like you say the P and then there's a tiny pause and then a burst of air. Okay. And so what you can do is you can manipulate that ever so slightly and different people might say it differently. So this is one of those kind of subtle aspects of our language that linguists can look at and see, you know, if you're saying you're with a little space or a slightly bigger mm. space, and then you're interacting with somebody else who does it differently, that's one of those ways that you might not be aware of it at all, and you might not notice it seeing someone else, but that's one of those ways that your voice can kind of change subtly to match someone else's. Should accent be added to the list of protected attributes in employment under civil rights laws? Uh, you tell, uh, you write about Mary Matsuda's suggestion for best practices in hiring, such as requiring employers to clearly delineate the need for effective communication on the job. Yeah, I mean, in in my ideal world, it absolutely should be. Um, and you know, so this is um, this is Title Seven law, the um, you know, which is the civil rights protection against employment discrimination, um, either you know against not hiring somebody or choosing to fire somebody. Um, and the idea is, you know, what if somebody has an accent you don't like, right? So the problem with language is that we often have sort of um, the wrong view or, or an incomplete view of communication. So we kind of think of the communicator as somebody who says something and then it's out there in the world and it either was, you know, clearly said or not. Um, it was a good job communicating or not. And so you think about communication as really just being the responsibility of the person doing the talking. But actually, communication is quite two-sided. And so if you're a listener and you're biased against a certain way of speech and somebody speaks in that way, you're much more likely to shut down and not listen and, you know, People can have the experience of thinking they can't understand somebody when actually they could. So my point is that when we think about communication in the workforce, we need to be aware of these social biases just as we think about biases against um, race or gender or national origin that are protected categories. And so currently, when you think about accent, if somebody is using accent just as a proxy for national origin, so for instance, you're not hiring anybody who has an accent that makes them sound foreign because they're foreign, then that would be protected. But what if you don't hire somebody because you think they're just not a good communicator? You say, look, I have no problem with foreigners. It's just that that person is not a good communicator. You know, no one can understand that accent. That's something that you really need to interrogate. Now, certainly it's possible somebody could have a challenge communicating, but it's also possible that they could be a completely adept communicator and everybody understands them, you know, just fine, but yet has this notion that there's something wrong with their communication. And that's the thing that we should be a little bit more careful about. And you write about the case of Manuel Fragrante, uh, yeah. where the Department of Motor Vehicles refused to hire him because 
his excellent service uh, civil service score he had that but uh, they said his accent made him difficult to understand and he sued claiming discrimination well why would the city have refused to hire him if it wasn't the real reason yeah. So again, you know, the problem with this, you know, this case was, um, is the one that, um, that Mary Matsuda, the legal scholar who has looked at this, right. that she talks about, and she'd actually become a part of his, um, helping him with, you know, working on a brief for his appeal. Um, and so, you know, the, the funny thing about this case, so here's this guy, he actually had the best score out of something. I think it was around 700 people who took this entrance exam. He was extremely well-educated. He'd worked in English for years, you know, and so he'd gone to, um, he'd gone to a university in English and so forth. And so he had a long track record of speaking English. And yet people wrote on his, you know, on his in-person exam, something like, you know, thick accent, can't understand him. And then they didn't hire him. And so again, the problem was that he couldn't show a clear case of national origin discrimination because really the discrimination was at the level of his accent. And so again, this is where I think the law needs to change to understand that accent discrimination you know, somewhat, um, which can be orthogonal to national origin dis discrimination at times, that it needs to be its own category. Now, what was so noteworthy about this case is that, you know, he testified. Um, he, nobody had any trouble understanding him during a very long conversation and testimony about whether or not people could understand him. And so, you know, it was sort of this, this really good example of how people can be biased and think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe other people won't understand him. But that's just the sort of thinking that courts have struck down. You know, you can't say, oh, well, you know, I'm not prejudiced against people of a certain race, but what if my customers are? That's just the kind of thing that employment law should protect against. You note that in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's early recordings, we can hear that she was careful to pronounce the R's in words, possibly to avoid sounding too New York. But Later on, once uh, she was on the Supreme Court, she somewhat reverted to a more Brooklyn sound. And you suggest that this may have been because she was more relaxed and sure of herself at that point. Uh, um, and, and do we hear that in the way she speaks now or in the case of Bernie Sanders, who's lived in Vermont most of his life, but sounds like he never left Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And that's what the linguists who have studied these cases, you know, suggest, too, that, again, when you speak, you're revealing something about your upbringing, and you're also revealing something about your current thinking and your current um, your current affiliation and your confidence in yourself. And so, you know, often when we kind of correct our speech or hyper-correct our speech, it can be something, you know, kind of a sign of this linguistic insecurity, this idea that I know I'm being judged and I want to speak in a way that's perfect. And so in letting our guard down, often that can be a great sign of confidence in yourself. I've wondered whether Bernie Sanders' accent uh, was a reason that he didn't go all the way because he was so popular in, uh, in other ways. I think it's hard to know from any one case, you know, in anything when you're looking at a situation of, you know, prejudice or bias, it's really hard to know when you're just looking at one example. But I think that you're right. It's a really it's a really interesting question to ask. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We'll continue right after this. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plains. I think she's got it. I think she's got it. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the 
By George, he's got it. By George, he's got it. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that soggy plain? In plain, in plain. Well, then, it's best and in the plain. Bravo! The rain is best and before I get back to my conversation with Professor Catherine D. Kinsler, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We are asking all of our loyal listeners to go to our website, give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602. That's 516 620 3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or our website give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month. $10, $15, whatever you're comfortable with, the, the, the way is to become a sustaining member or what we call a BAI buddy. Joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. That's right. Uh, we are delighted to be able to offer for listeners who become a BAI buddy uh, today, in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, the book that Leonard has been discussing with his guest, Professor Catherine D. Kinsler, and that is the book, How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. When Leonard and I saw this topic, we knew this was right in our wheelhouse, as both of us are very interested, not just in language. Uh, regular listeners will know that one of our regular contributors are Ross and Catherine Petrus, who study uh, language itself, the words itself, and the development of words. This is almost the inverse of that, isn't it, Leonard? The, the pronunciation and the, the how specific and diverse pronunciation has become in, uh, in, in the world. It's fascinating when you listen to an interview sometimes and think about how these two people who are speaking knowledgeably on the same topic still sounds so different. So I know we're offering, we're offering and, and people this, a copy of the book. If they become uh, BAI buddies, what do they have to do? Yes. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Becoming a BAI buddy is easy. You just have to give a call to our, uh, our operators standing by, so to speak at 516-620-3602. Again, 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two, or by going to the web at give to wbai.org. That's give then the number two wbai.org. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy, these are people. If you tell the, the person on the other end of the phone, or there's a, a box you can check on the web to become a BAI buddy. This is a sustaining member of the station. You get ten dollars, twenty dollars, thirty dollars. Whatever you are able to do, taken out of your credit cards, your debit cards, your, uh, your checking account, whatever's easiest for you, you can stop whenever you'd like. And it's a way for you to spread out the payment so you don't get hit 
all at once. Uh, and it's a way for us to have a feeling of who's supporting us. Yes, Leonard. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you also have to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large if you want to get a copy of the book. We hope that you'll make that contribution in, in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, whether you're getting the book or showing your support in some other way. But uh, th- that's an important thing to keep in mind. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jesse. No, absolutely. This is an important thing to get out there. And really, whatever level you're contributing at, if you're becoming a BAI buddy, if you are uh, getting this offer of uh, Professor Catherine D. Kinsler's book, how you say it, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you, if you want to continue to explore this topic that I myself find fascinating, the topic of today's show, yes, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we will make this happen. But really, whatever level you contribute, if you can make that contribution in the name of our show, in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, it is a great way to tell management that you need this this show in your life and that you appreciate the kind of interviews we do. You appreciate why things are different. I mean, this is a topic that Leonard, I mean, before I saw this book, I had had never seen it explored. I, I mean, I'm sure someone has to have tackled it at some point, but you're absolutely right. There's so many times when you hear two very smart people and even their own uh, pronunciation. Uh, can change. I remember during the days of the Mueller report, it took months uh, before there was some kind of agreement, it seemed like, across the media of whether this guy's name was Mueller or Mueller. And I think we've all now now uh, come to agreement. But but these are the kind of topics that we love on Leonard Lopez at large, where if it's something that we find ourselves thinking about all the time and yet don't really hear people talking about it, a phenomenon like this – that's when we. Uh, that's one criteria of of the criteria where we we start thinking. Well, maybe that's a show. But if you like that kind of thing, if you want it to keep coming to you five days a week, one to two p.m., uh, the only way to do that, uh, we really need all our listeners uh, to step up right now and call five one six six two zero three six zero two or go to give to wbai.org to lay out the offer one last time leonard so i can let you get back to this well, i do want to conversation make, with yeah, professor Kinsler. oh go Jesse, ahead i do want to make one other important point uh, a number of people have been forced to stop supporting us because they have lost their jobs and uh, no longer have the finances to to remain BAI buddies or uh, to just send in some money, so re- renew their their membership. So we hope that you will step up to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners, uh, whether they are people who can't afford to do it anymore or who are just discovering it. Uh, so you'll be giving them the gift of this hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope to bring you each installment of the show. And Jesse, you're going to give out the phone number one more time? Yes. Let me, let me in fact, give out the whole deal that we're offering. Now, we, we appreciate whatever level you can step up. And like Leonard was saying, you know, the pandemic has, has made it particularly difficult at BAI because we don't accept any corporate underwriting, no funding, no sponsorships. You are our only sponsors. If it sounds like an insane funding right, uh, model, you might be right. But this is the, this is the original 
funding model, Pacifica predates NPR, as we all know. This was the original, uh, the the OG model of 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 public radio. And so, if that means something to you, and if the kind of uh, f- programming that 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 kind of model brings means something to you. Uh, we need you to step up right now by calling five one six six two zero three six zero two, or by going to the web at give to wbai dot org. That's give them the number two wbai dot org. Now we've given you the doom and gloom. Here's the fun part: if you want to become a bai buddy, a sustaining member of the station, by making a, a contribution of ten dollars or more a month. Uh, in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we would be delighted to send you the book that Leonard is discussing today with our guest, Professor Catherine D. Kinsler, and that is how you say it, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. And what a fascinating topic. And Leonard, I want to let you get back to it, but just a big thanks to everyone who's been stepping up uh, for, for to keep this show coming to them and their fellow listeners. Uh, thanks a lot from all of us. And thank you, Jesse. Uh, Professor Kinsley, you tell the story of one of your former students, an African-American named Jamal, whose high school guidance counselor advised him that if he wanted to be taken seriously, he had to dress perfectly and speak perfectly. Did he become bilingual in a way, speaking one way at school and another way at home and with his friends? Yeah, he was, absolutely. So is uh, the African-American dialect incorrect English, as some people claim? It is not incorrect English, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think it's really important for people to realize um, that, you know, African-American English is a dialect of English. Um, now, some, and it's known by different terms. Some people say African-American vernacular English. Um, but the idea is that this is a completely um, grammatical way of speaking English. It has regularized grammatical features, just like any dialect. Um, it has its and, own rule. Yeah, it has its own rules. Um, it has its own uh, its own accent, you know. And so, any dialect of English or any dialect of any language is going to have its own rules in this way. Um, now, of course, there can be different dialects that are spoken in different contexts. And I think the problem is that when people have this idea that you know there's one way of speaking that's it's just you know not as good or it's just making mistakes or something like this, that you can just get a tremendous amount of bias and stigma against people and including against children who come to school um, speaking a home dialect. And so then you kind of have this, you know, this double-edged sword of not having, you know, not having language resources in school to support children in language learning and then also having a tremendous amount of judgment against their, against uh, the dialect that they're speaking. And it just creates a really unfair situation for many, many American children. Jackie Robinson, who uh, broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball and was one of the greatest players that ever lived, I remember people used to compliment him because he sounded white when he talked. Yeah. And so, you know, you find these studies where you see these biases against people's speech. And again, it's, you know, uh, prejudice against a dialect when, you know, particularly when you're thinking about this context of prejudice against black Americans, it can really be one of this, you know, one important or one really um, meaningful component of systemic racism in this society, which is that people can be biased against a certain way of speaking. And then often, and they might not, you know, it's particularly problematic 
form of bias because people might not even realize that they're doing it. They might think to themselves, oh, you know, I'm not racist. I just like a certain way of speaking better. But again, of course, all these cultural stereotypes and prejudices that you can have, you might then apply them to a certain way of speaking. And so in that sense, it's another way that racism can manifest itself. Do children who are adopted internationally after they've started talking usually remember their first languages or does, does the new language completely replace the old one, the original one? So yeah, so it's fascinating to watch these internationally adopted kids. Now, we don't have a study of, you know, you could imagine this would be the kind of thing if you were designing an experiment, you could have kids adopted at all different ages, right, up through adulthood. And of course, that's not typically how it works. So most people who have studied children who've been adopted, they're up until around, say, around seven or so that, you know, most of the data has, including a number of data of much younger children who are adopted. Um, but what you find is something kind of fascinating, which is that, say, imagine adopting a child who's age three or four, you know, really speaking their native language by the time they're adopted. Um, and you can find basically a, a complete language replacement at the level of, um, at the level of what they understand and, you know, what language they speak. So as adults, you know, imagine there are these studies of children who are born in Korea and adopted by French families. Um, and what you find is that as adults, they're completely French. They don't remember any of the Korean. You can, you know, give them a whole bunch of words to see. Maybe is there just like a tiny bit of learning, something like that. And you really see that, no, they're, they're linguistically French, just, you know, through and through, um, and they don't remember any of the Korean. Now, other researchers have tried to say, is there any of the Korean left? And there might be some small hints. And so if you look, you use um, a study of neuroimaging to see how their brains respond to the native language and how their brains, to what was their native language Korean and what is now their language French, you see slightly different activation patterns as a, compared to somebody who only, only heard one language throughout life. So it seems as with the, the way that the languages are processed in the brain might be slightly different. There's also some subtle evidence that there might be a little bit of savings, that if you try to relearn a language you knew as a child, even if you don't know any of it at all, it might be slightly easier to start to relearn those kind of you know, differences in sound. But I think the broader point is that basically you can completely replace, you can have kids who are so flexible and plastic in how they're learning languages that you could completely lose a language that you knew and learn another one as long as you're a young child. When I was in school, we didn't start learning a foreign language until junior high school, but that's changing and some schools are uh, offering bilingual education at, for, for, uh, the, in the early grades. Uh, some parents actually seek that and, and you recommend it. Does being yeah. bilingual help a person understand another person's perspective? Yeah, so I think that, you know, this is something we're learning more and more about, which is the advantages of being raised in a multilingual environment. So, you know, think about the perspective of a child who is hearing different languages. Now, even if they're not completely bilingual themselves, they have just a lot of practice in taking the perspective of others. So you might think something like, oh, well, grandma speaks this way. She talks to mom like this. Dad doesn't understand. Or maybe we speak this language in this context 
context in this other language over here. Or maybe at home we do this, but then when we go to school, we speak like this. And some kids also have my home knowledge and other kids don't. And so you're just getting all of this practice thinking about other people's linguistic perspectives. And then some evidence, including some of my own work, suggests that this then translates to other kind of perspective taking. So just putting yourself in someone's shoes more generally, um, which is, you know, one of the most important hallmarks of effective interpersonal communication and understanding is to be able to take someone's perspective. So I do think that this early multilingual exposure, even if you're not going to become, you know, a completely balanced bilingual, is really important. And I think you're right that, you know, there are these school districts in a number of states that are moving towards this early kind of dual immersion. So you could have, you know, one kid who speaks English at home, you could have another kid who speaks a different language at home, say Spanish at home, and then both kids could come together and they could learn English and Spanish, which I think is fantastic when it can exist. But then there's plenty of school districts, and in fact, even some estimates suggest that this latter kind of school district might be growing, which is the kind that's not able, you know, whether it's due to funding or staffing, that they're not able to offer a foreign language in elementary school or even perhaps not in middle school. And so, you know, I think that it's something we need to be aware of, the advantages of teaching multiple languages. And kids' brains are so ready to learn them when they're young that it's such a shame to miss that window and start instructing kids when they're older. Well, some states banned the teaching of foreign languages during World War One. I. I assume that was out of what they saw as patriotism. But you mentioned funding. In recent years, many universities have reduced and even eliminated their foreign language requirements. So uh, is do, do you understand where that trend comes from? Is it simply a matter of the money? So I think that what you see in both cases is probably something that was there, you know, just around World War One, but also persists today, which is this idea of a monolingual myth. And so part of this is, um, you know, so the the case in the the just after World War One was the banning of the teaching of foreign languages. Um, there's a famous case that happened in Nebraska, but there were other states that enacted similar laws around that time. So it clearly seems xenophobic, you know, fear of foreigners, mistrust in particular of um, German Americans. And so you had this, you know, anti-German language kind of bias that was happening. And so, you know, this seemed related to political concerns. Um, and xenophobia. Now, at the same time, you also have some history of science, many of which was somewhat around the same time, where people were arguing that hearing, that learning multiple languages could be cognitively disadvantageous to a child. So it's sort of like this idea of, oh, well, you know, if you're if you're learning two languages, maybe that just sort of takes up room in your brain, and then you wouldn't have space to learn all the other important stuff. So I think you sort of see these these dual influences, the xenophobia and then the nervousness around language learning. And I think you see signs of this continuing today. Um, now, just to note really critically, the science saying that learning multiple languages was dangerous, you know, has really been debunked. It's just not true that kids are quite capable of being in an environment where multiple languages are spoken. But I still think today you see kind of this idea that, you know, you only need one language or that, you know, wanting to feeling like you don't trust somebody who speaks in a foreign language. And I think you see that showing up in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. 
although you're always grateful when you're in a foreign country and the other person can speak English as well. Uh, we don't have much time left, but I did want to address this. You say that studies have found that after teachers emphasize gender differences to their elementary school classrooms for several weeks, I guess, uh, referring to the classes boys and girls, the students began to endorse stereotypical beliefs about gender. How is that measured? Yeah. And why so, would children not see gender as an important characteristic if adults didn't emphasize it? So, you know, this is this is kind of a shift. So a lot of what I talk about is the way we speak, right? So you're, the language you use or the accent that you use, and sometimes it's not about the words you say, right? So it's really about the way that you're saying those words, and then people are going to, you know, take a lot of different meaning from that. They're going to trust you. They're going to not trust you. They're going to feel biased against you and so forth. But what you're referring to is the actual words people are using, which it turns out matters too. So gender is a really interesting example. Now, of course, kids are getting input about gender, you know, all over the place. So it's not the case that kids go to preschool and then all of a sudden, you know, a preschool teacher says, okay, girls and boys line up. And then that's for sure not that, you know, the first time a kid's heard gender, you know, kids start to, they hear a lot of discussion of gender. They're really interested in figuring that out. They're noticing it. They can see gender in faces and so forth. So they're learning about gender from the beginning. But the idea is that if you like take the perspective of a five-year-old, you know, imagine you go around the day as a five-year-old, think how many times it comes up. And so, you know, sometimes I think this, I see this just watching my own kids interact, that adults talk about gender all the time. And so what they tried to do in this study or other studies like it is to really try to kind of amp up the gender language and see what happens. So in some classes, what they did was they just said, they took kind of the regular stuff you say about gender, like boys and girls line up, and then they just started using it all the time. So then they said, okay, you know, let's have the boys art go on this wall. The girls are going this way. Well, boys, line up and get your lunch. You know, girls, we're going to do this. So they start using it a lot. And what they find is that when your language conveys a category to kids, kids start to notice it more and more. And so uh, we, you have know, kids leave, we, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of oh. time. But I want to thank you so much. Catherine D. Kinsler, how you say it, why you talk the way you do and what it says about you published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. A lot more uh, to find out if you read her book. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Jessica Ramey, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive discussions, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcast. Or you can visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to send me your comments about any of our programs, just simply say hello. You can email me at lenopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, the pandemic has put WBAI in a very difficult position financially. And if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to wbai.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep community radio alive in the New York metropolitan area. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow when lecturer in media studies and history at California State University, East Bay, Nolan Higdom, will discuss his latest book, The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news education. We'll see you then.